All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Uh, this is September 27th, 2016. I'd like to remind you of also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And my partner, Chen Lin, publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And you can subscribe to both those letters by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or you can call our number here in New York at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. You can also pick up a lot of the information about the companies that I'm covering in my newsletter at uh, miningstocks.com. I do post important news releases from those companies as well as a lot of very important uh, articles that I pick up in the uh, in the internet that have to do with uh, why I am so bullish on gold and why I believe the markets are in such uh, turmoil and such trouble uh, and why you need to be prepared for not really what the mainstream is telling you about. Uh, so that's why I think shows like this are very important for you to listen to. We do want to thank our sponsors for making the show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show, Coral Gold Resources, New Legacy Gold Corp, Novo Resources, Columbus Gold, RN Resources, and Ariane Phosphate. Well, I've titled today's show, Trumped, A Nation on the Brink of Ruin and How to Bring It Back. And that is uh, that title is taken from the title of David Stockman's latest book, actually, and David will be with us at about half past the hour today. He is our our main guest. We want to talk to him about his book and and his thoughts on the uh, Trump candidacy. Uh, and as soon as we finish with the first break, the first commercial break, we're going to talk to James Anderson for the first time. James is with us. He is the CEO of an exciting gold exploration company named New Legacy Gold Corp. Um, he'll be with us to, to talk about that. They're really in the uh, process of making what I think could be a very major Carlin-style gold discovery in Nevada. Very exciting prospect given the current share price. Uh, if that turns out to be true, there's going to be a, a lot of money made in that stock. But we don't, uh, we'll be talking to, uh, to James right after our first break, but we're very fortunate to have with us immediately Michael Oliver. Thanks for being with me again, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. It's uh, the uh, Momentum Structural Analysis, and it's uh, OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com. Well, Michael, this morning you indicated to me that there was a, a market that you wanted to bring to my listeners' attention because you believe it has major ramifications for world markets. Uh, something to do, I believe you said, with some markets in Italy. Can you uh, talk about that? Right. It's uh, Italy, period. Um uh, the phenomenon of black swan has you know, been much discussed for the last several years. Uh, Mandelbrot, the father of chaos theory, uh, passed away several years ago. But 
he's got some followers who focus on markets, and they've, they've coined that term, black swan. And that's an event or a sequence of events that come out of the blue, seemingly, and uh, ambush markets. Uh, we found at MSA that we can often see these black swans coming because they don't come out of the blue. They actually have technical attributes. That, But, but you've got to watch the horizon. You can't just look at the S&P. Mm-hmm. And what's good or bad. You can't just look, for example, in 2007 at, well, the S&P's hanging in there, but if you watch the financial sector and the housing build, home builders and the lenders during that same period of time, while most sectors were steady to firm, these key sectors were collapsing. And mm-hmm. yet the market ignored it, ignored it, and ignored it, and all of a sudden we got ambushed in the summer of 2008 uh, belatedly, after it was obvious something was going on over in these other markets, they ultimately dragged everything down. So it was irrelevant what the tech earnings were or, or anything else. All that mattered was the housing sector. Well, in Europe, we know we have a languishing economy, but Italy is a huge debtor nation. Uh, they're one of the biggest bond markets in the world, uh, far bigger, relatively speaking, than you would imagine. Uh, they're, they're vastly larger in terms of vulnerability than Greece was. And we know what Greece caused back in 2011, a lot of turmoil. Well, if you look at the Italian stock market, and I use the FTSE MIB index, which is the Milan Bourse index. Uh, it's like their S&P 500. It's, it does behave uh, over the last, well, for instance, it collapsed in January, February, just like we did, just like the DAX did. Uh, and then the S&P rebounded, the DAX tried to rebound, and the Italian market said, well, I'm not going to go down anymore, but it didn't really rebound. It rebounded, came back to its low, and is languishing, but it didn't spoil the party, meaning it didn't collapse. It collapsed in February, but it didn't rejoin the collapse any time uh, since then. It's, it's gone sideways. So to that extent, it's quiet. It's uh, definitely anemic but it has not destroyed our party by creating a bad headline. But it's poised to do that now. now technically, that index broke under 16,000 today, intraday, came back close marginally above it. We're toying with the lows of the year again. And uh, if that index goes, uh, and I, I've got a number in the high 15,000s, if it touches that number, I think it's going to accelerate on the downside. That's about 2.7% below the current price, by the way, that mm. trigger number. So if we drop to that level, I think Italy will no longer be just quiet and anemic. It will be noisy. And if Italy is noisy, uh, it, will drag your, it will drag us. Uh, it's far bigger. It's too big to ignore. Uh, then you can go to their debt market, uh, the Italian government 10-year bond. Uh, their yields have been driven down to 1% and so forth by the ECB efforts. Uh, and uh, lower than our 10-year yield, which is ridiculous, of course, which means it's been artificially priced by the ECB. But that 10-year bond yield chart, and I've done technical studies on it, momentum studies, looks like it's trying to bottom and turn up, meaning higher yields, and get out of control, in other words, break free from the ECB uh, controls uh, and efforts to keep it suppressed. And it's not far away from that right now. So I'm looking at those two things, the Italian stock market, the government bond market of Italy. And they both look technically poised to create a lot of uh, turmoil and headlines. Now, I know right now in in, uh, Europe we're looking at the Deutsche Bank. And that's Mm -hmm. where all the smoke and and, uh, discussion are, Mm -hmm. the the travails of that bank. Uh, I'm suggested in a report I just issued that uh, don't watch that. That's a headline. That's That's a sucker story. Uh, mm-hmm. The real big story is Italy, 
because if it mm-hmm. goes, it, it, it's far bigger than anything we've ever dealt with in the last decade. All right. Decade. All right. So setting off a domino sort of a scenario, That's I guess, cool. possibly and uh, throughout Europe and who knows, the world is so interconnected now in all these markets with Correct. enormous amount of leverage, of course, like we've never seen before since we've gone off the gold standard. With just another minute or two left here, Michael, uh, talk to us a little bit about the uh, the gold market. I think... You're still looking at something mm-hmm. in the high 1400s, the low 1500s before we start to see any serious resistance. A lot of nervous Nellies out there in my sector, in the junior mining sector. They're kind of worried. You've been saying, ah, you're kind of yawning about it all. You don't see any real big downside risk. This is the least risk, yeah. pullback in gold. <laughs> Since it broke out, our, our metric uh, annual and quarterly momentum broke out at 1140 to 1160 price level back in February. Uh-huh. Blew out a massive base on momentum. It is now in the 1300s, 1300. 1300- 1920s, 1330 area. It's uh, 40 bucks off its recent high. It's a hundred and thirty some odd dollars above the May low, uh, and it spent it spent about two and a half to three months of fooling around in a zone mm-hmm. with very little downside. It's up, it's down, it's up, it's down, but it's mostly sideways, and it, so it's really the, actually the least downside of any stall gold has produced since it broke out in February. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm very unimpressed with it. It's very old in terms of the pullback. So to the extent that it, it, it needed a pullback, it's got one. It's spent two and a half to three months doing it. It hasn't really gone anywhere on the downside. I think if you get back up in the 1340s to 1350, it's gone. Okay. The leg starts up. So same All with right. the gold miners. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, same with the gold miners and uh, T-bonds. How is that looking to you now? T-bonds are going to hold the numbers that I needed this month. 165 mm-hmm. was the number you could not close a month at. The low trade of the month is 165 and 10.30 seconds, now up to 169 December futures. I think you'll trade up above 170 before next quarter or early next quarter. Then the key issue is do you close October at 166.5 on the deep these T-bond, if you do, it's over, We're going down. Yields are going up. Each month, that number will rise by a point and a half. Mm-hmm. So uh, wish them luck. But for <laughs> the moment, I didn't think September would be the breakdown month. I think it's more likely October uh, that you get your downside break in the price, upturn, and yield. So it's something to watch. All right. Do you think the, uh, the, the problems in Italy then could affect our, our bond markets here? And then it that might, set, off, uh, set off the bit, You know, because the yeah. flight from one to yeah. you know, the, the, the fear factor, again, could help our bonds hold off their decline uh, or rise in yields. could be held off by some panic event. Yes, that's, that's certainly the case. But I still think the T-bond market's uh, going down, uh, likely to break hard sometime, early, uh, sometime this year in the fourth quarter and begin a major downtrend. All right. Well, we'll want to keep watching that and uh, and, and keep having you uh, on the show if you're available. Michael, really glad uh, to have you with us. You really provide some great insights for us. And again, folks, it's OliverMSA.com. If you really want to keep on top of this stuff, because Michael sends out his missives frequently through the week when there's a market that's really starting to move of importance, he passes it on to his uh, subscribers. So uh, consider subscribing to Michael's letter. It's not inexpensive. It is for serious investors. But if you are a serious investor, you want to seriously consider it. Thank you, Michael, for being with us today, and uh, we'll do it again next week. Well, folks, don't go away. We have a commercial break, but when we come back, Michael, we're going to be talking uh, to James Anderson of uh, of New Legacy Gold and their discovery there, the Cortez Trend, uh, a new gold discovery there. Um, Well, they've made a discovery, but they're making some great 
inroads, some great assays coming out recently, suggesting they could be on to another Carlin-style multimillion-ounce gold deposit. So don't go away. We'll be right back with James Anderson. Foreign Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay Project, located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource, outlined by drilling thus far, stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Foreign is operated by the same team that founded Asenko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over two. $200 million. Coral Gold is an experienced precious metals explorer. Coral recently sold its flagship Robertson Gold property in Crescent Valley, Nevada to Barrick for $20 million and a royalty that increases with the price of gold. Coral is now refining its vision and focus for gold exploration in Nevada with over $20 million in cash, a favorable share structure, and three gold properties in the Crescent Valley region near Barracks Cortez Pipeline Operation. Coral is well-positioned to pursue a number of growth opportunities now under consideration by management. Coral trades as CLH on the TSX Venture Exchange. Novo Resources focuses on the exploration and development of gold projects. Its flagship asset is the Beaton's Creek Gold Project in Western Australia, where it is currently processing a 30,000-ton bulk sample. Novo also controls 100% interest in the Blue Speck Gold Antimony Project, where it is conducting a 10,000-meter drill program. The company has over $7 million in cash and enjoys strong shareholder support from the likes of Eric Sprott and Newmont Mining. It trades in Canada and the U.S. under the symbols NVO and NSRPF respectively. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm glad to have with me for the first time James Anderson. Uh, He is the Director and Chief Executive Officer of New Legacy Gold. New Legacy Gold trades in Canada under the symbol NUG, and you can buy it down here in the States as I have under the symbol NULGF. There are 273 million shares outstanding at recently trading at around Canadian 50 cents. That would give it a market cap of around $136 million. Since this is James' first time with us, uh, I should tell you that his background is in the area of finance and investments, but he has uh, been around the mining industry for quite a few years, and uh, he has very strong people skills that enable him to work very well with uh, geoscientists on the one hand, and on the other hand, investment bankers and uh, investors of all uh, of all types. Uh, he brings with him some great communication skills, which is really, uh, really wonderful, uh, because he's here to tell us today about New Legacy Gold. Thanks for joining me today, James. 
Thank you very much, Jay. Those are very kind words. I appreciate that. Well, it's uh, certainly words that are uh, that are honestly spoken. I've known you for a number of years, and I'm really pleased that you could join me today. You seem to have a very good uh, shareholder base, James, at New Legacy. I'm very impressed by the uh, by the shareholders, uh, the institutions, uh, the management, and the insiders own a lot. You have some investment houses that own a lot, and you have some mining companies that own a lot. Uh, can you describe for our listeners uh, who some of those major investors are and, and why mining? Might they be interested in, in particular, I'm interested in knowing why some of the major mining companies might be so interested in owning a good chunk of your company. Yeah, okay. These are all really good points. We have an excellent group of shareholders, very supportive shareholders that have supported us, especially through the downturn in the gold mining and um, gold mining shares uh, depression that we've had for the last few years. Um, Let's just start with our largest shareholder, Oceana Gold, and I'll go through the list and give you a little brief synopsis of why we feel that they're that they've been attracted to this company and why they've been attracted to the the deposit that we've got, which um, you know is the reason why everyone's interested. So Oceana, they're a, a medium-sized Australian company, probably a three billion dollar market cap. They had a and continue to have a stated goal of expanding their operations into the Americas. And when we were able to identify that, we showed them this project. And uh, after a little bit of negotiation, they decided to invest $6.7 million into our company. So they are now our largest shareholder with about 17.5%. And then there's Barrick Gold. Barrick is the largest gold mining company in the world. And we have a lot of points in common with Barrick. Um, first of all, they're shareholding. They own 11.8% of us. They got those shares when we did a share swap with them. We purchased their 30% residual interest in our deposit. They got a very large block of our shares. They saw the wisdom in that. Um, They still have a very, very keen interest in what we're doing. And that's best illustrated by the fact that their head of global exploration and corporate development has joined our board, Rob Rob Kretschmerow. So he's become a a board member and... um, at least on kind of a quasi-consultative way, um, he's quite involved with how we're moving the project forward. Um, so that's the two big mining companies that are involved. Uh, Tocqueville Gold Fund, one of the large New York uh, gold investment houses, they own 7.2%. They bought that in a market transaction. Waterton is a, uh, a multi-billion dollar fund out of Toronto. They gave us money during the downturn when there really was very, very little money around to move these exploration projects forward. So happy to have them on board. Uh, recently, Ingalls and Schneider, a again, a New York fund, um, a little bit more of a more of generalists. Uh, they, they own our stock as well. So very supportive of what we're doing and um, you know, great shareholders to have on board. Well, you have uh, those great shareholders, and and, uh, they're certainly not oblivious to the location where your iceberg property is. It is located on the uh, sort of the southeastern Cortez trend. But can you tell our listeners a little bit why the Cortez trend uh, is so important and and why, from the potential of a prospective deposit, why Barrick and uh, and Oceana and others are interested in your your story? Right. So the the Cortez trend in Nevada, it's really part of a a subset of the Battle Mountain Eureka trend. And it it runs for about 25 miles in in length, in strike length. There, There are three giant deposits in this trend. They're all owned by Barrick. Two of them are in production. One is called Pipeline, 
what is called Cortez Hills, and the one that's the most recent large discovery is called Gold Rush, all, all owned by Barrick. Um, just a, a few key points for your listeners about these deposits. They are 21, 15, and 10 million ounces, respectively. There's hardly a place on the planet that you can find three deposits of that size in such close proximity. So for the little company, all, as you know, Jay, all of the little companies, all of the junior companies, they want to be beside, close to, in proximity with giant deposits. Where do you find a giant deposit? Well, nine times out of ten, you find it close to other giant deposits. So. We like the idea of exploring nearer these very, very large deposits. From a, a real meat and potatoes kind of way, though, Barrick produces a million ounces of gold per year from Pipeline and Cortez Hills in wow. this area. And you, you, know, you put that in perspective for a moment, that's 20% of the production of the largest gold mining company in the world comes from the immediate area where we're working. Uh, I, I would just like to make the other point, too. Roger Steiniger, who's our uh, head geologist, our head of geology, um, he, he is credited with that discovery with, with Pipeline some years ago. Mm-hmm. So Roger knows the rocks in this area as well as anybody. Well, that's for sure. And it's my understanding as well that the pipeline and and, uh, and possibly uh, also the Cortez Hills, but at least the pipeline is one of the lowest cost mines that Barrick has as well. That's correct. Now, on a line item basis, Barrick doesn't break out pipeline and Cortez Hills. They simply call it the Cortez operation in their um, quarterly and year end statements. But last year, they, they produced that million ounces for $603 all-in sustaining costs. So it's one of the their their most profitable operations anywhere on the planet. And I notice also that as we go down the trend closer to the uh, iceberg deposit where you're working, uh, Barrick's Gold Rush has got a, a high grade. I think it's the highest grade of 10 million ounces. But if I'm looking at something correctly, it's 10.2 grams per ton. No, so that's that that is correct. So Gold Rush again, just to bring your listeners up to speed. Gold Rush, um, mineralization in that area had been known for a number of years, but it wasn't until 2010 that Barrick drilled a few holes, spectacular drill holes, and really figured out controls of mineralization and how the how the um, the ore body looked like it was put together. So they then threw a lot of capital and a lot of people capital at that deposit. At one point, they had 21 drill rigs turning on it, wow. and you know made a made a very very large deposit out of it. Now um, last year, Barrick had the the quoted numbers from that deposit at about 15 million ounces of gold at 4.7 grams. Mm. Now, what they've done is they've taken a really high-grade envelope of that, and they now report 10 million ounces at over 10 grams. Now, the reason for that, it's, it is a spectacular deposit, but it does have a couple challenges. It's quite deep, and it's all refractory ore. And okay. what, that, what that means is instead of just being able to put that material onto a leach pad, what they're going to have to do is truck that ore probably about 80 miles to the north where their gold strike roaster is. So in order to do that, you're going to need uh, a, a high grade, um, you know, some high grade material to be able to do that with, and that's what they've done there. But uh, spectacular numbers: 10 million ounces at 10 at 10 grams. The the Barrick team that discovered that won the the Fair Lindsley Award in 2013 for global mineral discovery. That was at the uh, Prospector and Developers Association convention in Toronto. So it's, it is an award, a truly award-winning deposit. Well, who knows? Uh, you're next door, and, and maybe Roger Steiniger will, will be so fortunate uh, and the shareholders of, uh, of New Legacy to have another award uh, given for a deposit discovery next door. But uh, you have a lot of work to do, of course, before we can, before we can uh, know for sure whether that's going to take place. You have a, you drilled, drilled quite a bit already, but it is a mammoth property. Uh, James, as I look at it, it's just it's just absolutely huge. And um, 
recently you come out with some drill results that seem to drive the market pretty well uh, on, uh, on, on the avocado deposit, which is one of two. You have the iceberg deposit, which is part of the iceberg property. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the significance of those two deposits. You, you really haven't done enough drilling yet to come up with a 43101, that is a, uh, the regulatory requirements for starting to name or, or give a number of ounces in the ground. But talk to us a little bit about the potential. I mean, I'm, I'm just looking at the size of this. I look at this um, avocado and I see a discussion at the eastern part of the avocado. Uh, the, the latest drill hole you drilled it was to the east uh, and the mineralization looks to line up more with uh, perhaps a, an extension of the iceberg, which is uh, well over two kilometers to the south. I mean, if, if you can connect the dots here, it seems to me, James, you've got something very substantial, potentially. I think that's right. So that's uh, that's a lot of information. Let me let me just back up a little bit and talk about the size of the property itself. So it's 38 square miles. Mm-hmm. It's a it, it is the it's the largest claim block that any company has in the Cortez trend outside of Barrick. So. You know, then that's that's a really substantial thing. Through our initial earn-in from Barrick on this property, and then our um, our purchase of their residual thirty percent, we managed to get a hundred percent of this. And really, it was only the downturn in the gold price and the downturn in gold equities that allowed us to do that. And I I liken it to having a, a corner lot on Park Avenue in New York. It's just impossible to replicate the 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 trend that we're in may well be the best place on the planet to find a gold mine. And we've got 38 square miles to explore for one. So that's thing one. Uh, thing two, again, during the downturn, it was very difficult to raise money. So we, we wanted to be prudent and be drilling drill holes in our iceberg deposit, expanding our iceberg deposit, and coming up with, as you know, Jay, some excellent uh, results here over the last mm-hmm. few years. Um, the avocado discovery that's really just been announced over the last two or three weeks, now that we've got a little bit more money in our jeans, we don't mind stepping out to some of the peripheral areas on this property and taking a shot on, on some of the other targets. Well, one of these other targets is called avocado. And the reason that it's called avocado is because the, the induced polarization IP geophysical survey that we did out in that area in plan the, the signal looks like the slice, the sliced, uh, a sliced avocado. So the, the name stuck. We drilled a couple holes into this this year with really spectacular, we feel, results. Now, the, the first hole, avocado number two, it's a 200 meter, so it's a 655 foot interval of gold mineralization. Mm-hmm. Now, it's only a quarter gram at that, you know, over that broad interval. So some people will look at it and go, well, that's kind of low grade. And granted, it, it is. But the idea, the fact that we've gone out and with only our second drill hole in this area, gotten a 200 meter, a 655 foot interval of gold, that's really spectacular. Um, it's in an area, as you say, if, if you look at the size of the anomaly itself, uh, being a couple kilometers, so call it a mile and a half long and maybe three quarters of a mile wide, it's an enormous area for us to explore in. Um, you know, where that's going to lead us, we don't know, but that's quite exciting. And then our next drill hole that we drilled into that also came up with a very good uh, gold interval, 25 meters of a gram. So we're very excited about the possibilities. We're just, we've just scratched the surface out there, very excited about the possibilities of what we can find uh, in that area. What is this? What is the strategy, James, in terms of establishing a, uh, a 43-101 resource? Most companies like to do that early on. It's a way to promote their story and get people interested 
interested in it, but you, this thing is so large. What is the strategy? Well, so far, we just haven't really seen the the need or the desire to do that. Certainly, our shareholders, our major shareholders, whether it's Oceana, Barrett, or the, some of the large funds, in an afternoon, they can create a, a 43101 compliant resource themselves. And it's, you know, it's not rocket science. You can, you know, your listeners can uh, take three dimensions and multiply them and come up with a, with a number that we might be able to, to look at. Um, the other thing is, is right now, because we're drilling so aggressively, if we come up with a resource, then you know within a very brief period of time, that resource will probably be obsolete. So for the time being, you know we're simply going to drill, continue to find more gold. Uh, your listeners can look at a number of different cross sections and see a bunch of the drilling on our website, which we invite them to do. Um, for the time being, this is a, a, a very fast-moving exploration, discovery-driven story, and I, I think that that's working well for us right now. But how are your financial resources at this stage? Are you are you well funded to uh, continue the exploration? We are. Currently, we've got about 13 million Canadian dollars. So call that 10 million U.S. dollars in the Treasury. Uh, Pro forma, we'll have about 7.5 million U.S. dollars leaving 2016. So we're quite well funded going forward. And um, we we continue to drill. There will be more drilling results every three weeks uh, or so. Uh, till mid-November, and there'll be lots more news between here and and that time. Well, I can say this last drill hole certainly did seem to move the needle in terms of your share price, and uh, I would suggest that more of those, those of, those kind of results, especially if you start to connect the dots between these wide space drill holes, um, and especially if you were to come up with some high grades. I mean, James, you know, I, I think very frequently these Carlin-type deposits do have some very high-grade stuff, very high-grade intersections uh, to be found as well. I guess uh, that may be something that could really move the needle as well. Huh? I completely agree. Um, first of all, I think what's really interesting about this story, the, the stock market really liked the fact that we had an important gold interval at Avocado. Not high grade, but the stock market recognized the fact that this could be very, very important. In terms of higher grade material, you'll remember, Jay, last year we drilled one hole at, at Iceberg proper where we got 41 meters of almost four grams of gold. Yeah. And that's a, that's a spectacular drill hole in just about any deposit. Uh, a hole like that at Avocado, I think, would change materially the way that people think about it. The other thing that I want to point out, too, for your listeners, the the drill hole and the interval that we got, especially in Avocado number two, it's at the same stratigraphic horizon, so it's in the same rock types and at the same depth as the gold rush deposit, as Barrick's gold rush deposit, just across the valley from us. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that that's pointing a lot of people to the importance of this interval and and what it could be. One more point, too, regarding the the higher grades. One thing that I've really learned about Carlin Systems over the last number of years, grade can change so quickly. So when you step out even a couple hundred feet from one drill hole to the next, your grade can change materially. So the fact that this one big interval that I've been talking about is lower grade, but the fact that it's 655 feet worth of gold mineralization, that's the important part. That's the that's the thing that people are excited about. Right. It's a huge mineralized system, no doubt about that. And I think as you start to connect the dots between the widely spaced drill holes so far, uh, the that uh, the market's going to really like what they see. Anything else in summing up, James, that you'd like to say? I think I just, I just, well, I guess one other thing about avocado. Um, you know, now now that we've got a lot of people's excitement, everybody wants us to walk out there and, and drill some holes really, really quickly. 
Um, it's likely that we will take you know, at, at least a number of weeks and maybe a couple of months to look at all of the geology here uh, before we go back out and drill some holes out there. So you know, I just want people to be aware that we will, we will take a little bit of time. Uh, that, have, that having been said, we are now on approximately our 95th drill hole on this property. We, we drilled 35 holes under this property last year when no one else in the junior mining industry was drilling anything. So we're not shy about drilling holes out here, but we're going to do it um, intelligently uh, and methodically and make sure that we come up with you know a, a, as good an exploration plan as possible. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it go at that. We're out of time. But thank you, James, very much for sharing this exciting story with our listeners. And uh, we'll look to talk to you again for an update sometime in the not too distant future. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, folks, don't go away because after the break, David Stockman's going to be with me to talk about his new book, Trumped, A Nation on the Brink of Ruin and How to Bring It Back. Well, David Stockman, President Reagan's uh, budget director, always has a lot of uh, very important words of wisdom. So don't go away and please come back and hear what David Stockman has to say. New Legacy. New Legacy Gold is expanding its iceberg gold deposit in the Cortez Gold trend of mining-friendly Nevada, which is the fifth largest gold mining jurisdiction in the world. New Legacy's deposit is a Carlin-style gold deposit, which can be some of the largest and most profitable gold deposits anywhere. New Legacy's largest shareholders include major gold mining companies Oceana Gold and Barrett Gold Corp., the world's largest gold mining company. New Legacy is well-funded and professionally managed, and we invite you to visit our website to learn more newlegacygold.com that's n-u-l-e-g-a-c-y gold.com again n-u-l-e-g-a-c-y gold.com Ariane Phosphate is the owner of the world's largest greenfield phosphate project. Unlike other fertilizer nutrients such as potash and nitrogen, phosphate is in deficit in most areas of the world, including right here in North America. It has no substitute and is necessary if we're to grow our crops. Unlike the Middle East and North Africa, which controls most of the world's phosphate, Ariane is situated in mining-friendly Quebec and, once in production, will reduce North America's growing reliance on foreign supply. With a market cap representing just 4% of its $2 billion NPV, Ariane may be the answer to growth in investors' portfolios while ensuring the safety of our food supply. Ariane, D-A-N on the TSXV and E-R-R-S-F in the U.S. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am uh, your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have with me once again David Stockman, former di- director of the Office of Management and Budget in the Reagan administration. And a couple of years back, David wrote a 700-plus page masterpiece titled The Great Deformation. And I would suggest that if you're serious about understanding the real reason why the rich are getting richer and the middle class in America is being destroyed... And if you are not satisfied with the Robin Hood policies of Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton, uh, you would do very well 
uh, to take a, a look at the Great Deformation because God only knows the policies of the past certainly are not working, at least if you really care to take a look at the true facts, and that's why we have uh, David Stockman with us today. But uh, we want to talk to him today not about the Great Deformation, although there's an overlap for sure between that work and his latest. But what we want to talk to David about today uh, is his uh, new timely book, Trumped, A Nation on the Brink of Ruin and How to Bring It Back. Thank you for joining me again today, David. Well, Jay, I'm very happy uh, to continue the dialogue we started uh, last time. Yes, we've had you on a few times now, and, and it's just really always exciting and very thrilling to have you with us. You are a hero going way, way back, not afraid to tell presidents what they need to know, and you were a fairly young man when you did that, and they took you to the woodshed, but yeah. somehow they never broke you, and I'm glad they didn't because you're here now to continue telling the truth, and we always need people like you uh, uh, to retain some sanity or some hope for the future, because unless we can really diagnose the real problems, I think there's little chance of ever seeing things get better. Well, in your fir- in the first chapter of your new book, Trumped, you talk about how the bottom 90% of Americans have seen their living standards decline to an unprecedented degree over the past number of decades. Hillary Clinton and President Obama blame the current economic ills. Uh, on the worst recession since the last depression. He said, after all, we inherited this this beast, and now, look, we've made it much, much better. Well, that's, I think, debatable, and I think you probably don't agree with that. But Donald Trump, on the other hand, he blames unfair trade deals. In your work, you dig much deeper than either of those uh, explanations uh, of the politicians. You explain the problem uh, in great depth. Uh, can you provide an overview of the true reasons why the middle class is being destroyed and why a very small minority of our ruling elite are becoming extremely rich. Yeah, uh, I think uh, what I'm talking about now is uh, simply a continuation of uh, where we were with the Great Deformation. That really focused on the crisis of 2008 and 2009 and then the insane money printing and massive uh, bailouts of Wall Street and the auto industry and then uh, QE and everything that followed, none of this really uh, addressed the fundamental problem of what I call bubble finance. It actually uh, exacerbated and compounded the problem. So here we are today in 2016 with even more massive financial bubbles, even greater instability built into the system as a result of, uh, you know, the actual lunacy, let's just call it that, of 94 months of keeping the money market rate, which is the key price in all of finance and all of capitalism, the overnight rate that drives uh, everything at the end of the day at zero which has done nothing for the Main Street economy and created endless uh, free uh, carry trade uh, money or gambling chips, as I call it, uh, for the speculators on Wall Street. And so the reason I wrote this book now is to try to address why did Trump happen? I mean, I don't Mm -hmm. think that he has uh, laid out any articulate or cogent or uh, systematic uh, um, program to address this, but at least he is an outsider. Uh, he represents the voice of insurrection. He did properly say in the debate 
that uh, we're suffering from 30 years of bad policy and bad experience uh, that has led to war and debt and bubble finance and uh, a rogue central bank and uh, all of the other ills that we know about. And so what I attempt to do in the book is suggest that the chickens are coming home to roost. This policy of bubble finance has been so one-sided that it's created enormous prosperity for a tiny fraction of the population with this uh, huge inflation of financial assets that we've had and has hollowed out um, and seriously uh, injured uh, you know, Main Street America, or what I call flyover America, um, as a result of, uh, of these policies. And I give a couple of symptoms, uh, and I think there are many more that we can talk about, but one you mentioned, if you use an honest measure of inflation, not the short stick that uh, the BLS puts out and the Fed favors, but what we call the flyover CPI, which gives... Um, a proper way to uh, the basic uh, cost of living that people face, uh, uh, energy and food, uh, health care and shelter. And that then measures especially health care and the cost of housing properly. Uh, and you use that to deflate the median income that's uh, calculated and published by uh, the Census Bureau. You find that uh, the median real income has declined by 17% um, since the year 2000. And mm -hmm. that's, uh, I think, a measure of where um, flyover America stands. We're not talking about 1% or 2%. We're not mm -hmm. talking about a temporary setback. We're talking about the entirety of this century so far in which uh, the uh, middle class in America, or the lower 90% for that matter, has experienced a larger shrinkage in real living standards than ever before in modern history, if not uh, all of American history. So that's where I center this book, an indictment of the status quo, not in, in particular uh, any uh, uh, testimonial in behalf of Trump, but it tries to explain why uh, the uh, public is uh, rallying to his cause, his candidacy. Uh, and it's essentially a case where they've had enough that they can see uh, this uh, is not helping jobs. This is not helping incomes. This is not helping living standards in most of America. It's creating what I call bi-coastal prosperity to the mm -hmm. people who either play uh, in the financial system on Wall Street or uh, are in the venture capital, Silicon Valley, uh, social media business, or who live off the uh, uh, tentacles uh, uh, one way or another of this massive uh, federal government warfare state and welfare state that has implanted itself in Washington in what I call the Imperial City. So um, this uh, uh, book then um, tries to uh, put in context uh, where we stand today and suggest that we are on the brink of ruin. You know, all hell is going to break loose momentarily. Trump was right when he said we're in a big 
fat, ugly bubble. And as soon as they uh, let their uh, put the, lift their foot off the neck of uh, interest rates, uh, we're going to have another big crash. I think he's absolutely right about that. I think we're at the end of this very tepid and barely measurable recovery, as he said, it was the weak, it's the weakest one in modern history. We're heading for another recession. And when we get into recession, we're going to find that this time the central bank has no tools, has no dry powder. They're already at zero for all practical purposes. They've already printed, you know, three and a half trillion dollars. And if that fails, uh, then I think printing more is more likely to scare the financial markets than rescue them. So uh, we ha- we're on the uh, brink of um, a fiscal situation that is about ready to explode. You know, the uh, false comfort that Obama keeps putting out about the deficit coming down. Well, of course, when you have even a partial recovery, uh, there is some pickup in revenue, but it's back up again. We're, we're going to exceed $600 billion this year, and uh, the fiscal year is just closing. And we're heading back towards a trillion very soon, even before uh, we get a full-fledged recession. And when you lay that on, uh, we're back into the multi-trillion annual deficits. Now, you add um, a minimum of $15 trillion to the public debt, which will be $20 trillion when the next president is sworn in, you've got $35 trillion of debt on an economy that I show in the book is not likely to be much more than $20, 24000000000000 trillion. And so there, this is 10 years out by the middle of the next decade. And so therefore, you are at 140, 150% debt to GDP ratio. You're in essentially the same condition that Italy and Greece and the rest of the failing um, uh, socialist states of Southern Europe are at. So uh, we have big problems uh, hurtling down the track. uh, And Hillary Clinton is basically saying everything is fixed and it's getting better and let's do more of the same. Trump is saying, I don't believe any of it. And I think that, you know, at least he's right on that. The question remains, if he, by some miracle, is elected, what will happen then? And uh, I think it's going to be a pretty uh, wild and woolly journey. Um, Well, I I would just mention that on page nine of your book, Donald Trump's candidacy, the good and the bad of it, uh, maybe talk about, I think you've probably hinted at some of the good of it, at least he's recognizing that things aren't all right. I mean, the first way, road to recovery is to realize that you have a, a problem and admit it and try to do something about it. So is that what you see is good about Donald Trump? What do you see that's good about him? And then what is bad about him? Because I would quote you on, on page nine, you said, our purpose at this point, however, is to dispel any illusion that Donald Trump, the man in his platform, offers any semblance of a remedy, end of quote. Right. Well, <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, what I'm saying, the good of it is that he's challenging the status quo. He's at least recognizing that you have a $20 trillion national debt, <clears throat> and we're, we're damn near broke, and it's going to be uh, uh, very difficult to manage that going forward. He has at least pointed the finger at the Fed. He has said that Janet Yellen should be ashamed of herself. He has said that interest rates are artificially low and that we're not in an economic recovery. We're in a false 
stock market um, you know, upturn. So he said all those things. But the problem is he, he hasn't thought through an alternative economic program. Uh, he's embraced a lot of things that uh, really aren't going to solve anything. Uh, uh, for instance, he said we need uh, Hillary wants a $275 billion uh, uh infrastructure program, well, I'll go $500 billion. So I have a whole chapter in there saying, look, it is a myth that the infrastructure in America is falling apart, number one. Second, the only real federal role in all of this anyway is the interstate highway system, which is in pretty de- decent shape. Third, if you think it needs a little more money, raise a couple pennies on the gas tax and you'll get it all. Fourth, stop wasting money on state and local roads, which t- local taxpayers or users ought to cover and certainly stop dissipating it on things like mass transit and highway uh, beautification and bicycle paths and all the other uh, diversions that they've taken out of the trust fund. <laughs> uh, people may not know this, but only one third of the $45 billion collected annually in the highway tax goes to the interstate highway system per se. The rest of it huh. is pork barrel. It is, uh, you know, what the politicians over the years, the deals they've made uh, uh, in order uh, to roll the, the log forward, so to speak. Now, I just use that as one example. I think his point on trade is right and wrong. Yes, we have a huge trade uh, deficit in goods, nearly $800 billion current services uh and counting uh, uh, services uh, four or five hundred billion, but it's not due to bad trade deals per se. It's due to bad monetary policy. So I go into a detailed analysis, and I think one of these chapters is very uh, timely uh, on this very topic. And I said, look, when you have a Fed policy designed to cause a minimum of two percent inflation. In an open world market where uh, goods and services and capital can flow pretty much at will, uh, what we have done over the last 20 years is offshored and exported a lot of our jobs because we have made American wages uncompetitive. And I show that the nominal wage when Greenspan started all this, the average hourly wage in nominal terms was about $9 an hour. It's 23 today. But in real terms, uh, it is lower, actually, than it was back then. So we've tripled the nominal wage in a world where we have to compete with the China price on goods and the India price on services as more and more back office uh, uh, service uh, functions, so-called, are offshored as well. And therefore, we send the good jobs abroad. We then create enormous competitive pressure on wages from excess labor supply here, which holds down wages in the middle and lower end of the scale. Mm -hmm. And so the Fed gets its inflation and the average worker and the um, below average worker ends up with a paycheck that is shrinking in real terms because of the stupidity of this whole 2% uh, inflation policy. So uh, I uh, try to pin the tail on the donkey. I, you know, and that's the Fed, in which I say first the whole uh, infl- uh, inflation targeting and the two percent policy is misbegotten. 
there is no real uh, economic logic or proof anywhere that you get better growth in sustainable terms uh, with 2% inflation than you would with one or negative uh, 2%. Uh, secondly, it is uh, you know causing the huge loss, and I document this uh, at length, of uh, good uh, jobs uh, to the offshore because of uh, wage inflation. And uh, third, uh, it ends up creating enormous bubbles in the financial system, which then, uh, to compound uh, uh, matters, to make uh, add insult to injury, uh, essentially turns the C-suites, the uh, top management and boards of the, the major companies, into stock trading rooms, as I call it, because they're rewarded for essentially borrowing money or channeling all of their cash flow into stock buybacks and dividends and uh, not investing in uh, the future of these businesses and in real uh, competitive, productive, uh, efficiency producing assets. So you get, you know, you can't imagine uh, three impacts that are worse. You're killing savers. That doesn't even need to be, uh, you know, uh, elaborated. Mm-hmm. You're killing jobs because of this whole uh, offshoring process. You're killing living standards because the bottom half can't keep up uh, even with the Fed's uh, inflation. And you're killing investment by uh, diverting, uh, uh, you know, the management of American companies uh, into, uh, uh, you know, financial engineers uh, trying to inflate their stock prices and their option uh, package values. Now, you couldn't imagine anything more perverse than that. But that's the heart of what's wrong. That's why Flyover America is failing. That's why they're voting for Trump. The problem is I don't think Trump begins to appreciate uh, where the evil lies. It's not because some goofball in the USTR, which is the you know, U.S. Uh, Trade Representative's office, or the Commerce Department isn't being tough enough in some negotiation, although uh, I don't think these trade agreements that we have now are worth much, and he's right that the TPP, for instance, uh, ought to be forgotten about and rejected. But the har- but the agency that's causing the problem is not the USDR; it's the uh, Federal Reserve in the Eccles Building. And All right, David. Our- David, with just about four minutes left, I want to run this idea by you then, uh, with regard to the uh, to the monetary system and the Federal Reserve. Uh, this is something that I I'm hoping uh, is a hopeful sign with respect to Trump. I understand that there's a Dr. Judy Shelton economist who is an advisor to Donald Trump, and she is a proponent of a return to some sort of a gold-backed monetary system. Are you familiar with her at all? Oh, yes. I'm very familiar. I've uh, read many of her pieces, I think a couple of her books. Uh, And I think that's uh, a very encouraging sign. Uh, I don't know whether Trump listens to her or who he listens to. Uh Um, But at least uh, rather, uh, I would rather have, uh, you know, that voice uh, in his inner council or even Larry Kudlow and Stephen Moore and some of those uh, 1980s supply siders who have one idea, cutting taxes, which is okay, but there's a lot more that needs to be addressed than uh, the typical business Keynesian who've advised Republican 
uh, presidents and um, uh, uh, top uh, legislators for the last 20 or 30 years. So again, that, that's a bit of a hopeful sign. Now, I might say on that topic, I think I have a very interesting chapter in my book, and it's called uh, Why the FOMC Should Be Abolished. Mm-hmm. And they essentially do is go back to 1913 to Carter Glass to the origination of the Federal Reserve and point out that it was intended to be a banker's bank, did not have any macro function, did not have any mandate for inflation or unemployment or housing starts or retail or anything else. It did not have the right to own any government debt in in any way, shape, or form, was not in the business of pegging interest rates, but instead was a standby source of liquidity that would discount real commercial bills and uh, receivables uh, that, uh, you know, were short-term uh, for cash uh, based on the market interest rate plus a premium. And so, therefore, if too much gambling and speculation got into the market, interest rates would rise and uh, the Fed would only provide liquidity on good collateral and at very high interest rates, which would nip you know, the whole speculative process in the bud. That's the Okay, op- David, we're, David, we're going to have to let it go at that. We are out of time, unfortunately. Uh, the next show comes on after mine, and so we do have to let it go at that. But I want to thank you very much. Can people pick up your book at the bookstore online, Amazon, I suppose? Yes, it's on Amazon now. Uh, it can be pre-ordered. The printed copy is coming shortly. Uh, the e-book is available right now, and it'll be in the bookstores uh, very soon. Oh, thank you so much for being with us, David. Always a pleasure. I hope to do it again sometime in the not-too-distant future. Well, folks, that is all the time we have today. Next week, Richard Mayberry will be with us as our main guest. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Gold is an experienced precious metals explorer. Coral recently sold its flagship Robertson Gold property in Crescent Valley, Nevada to Barrick for $20 million and a royalty that increases with the price of gold. Coral is now refining its vision and focus for gold exploration in Nevada with over $20 million in cash, a favorable share structure, and three gold properties in the Crescent Valley region near Barracks Cortez Pipeline Operation. Coral is well positioned to pursue a number of growth opportunities now under consideration by management. Coral trades as CLH on the TSX Venture Exchange. New Legacy Gold is expanding its iceberg gold deposit in the Cortez Gold trend of mining-friendly Nevada, which is the fifth largest gold mining jurisdiction in the world. New Legacy's deposit is a Carlin-style gold deposit, which can be some of the largest and most profitable gold deposits anywhere. New Legacy's largest shareholders include major gold mining companies Oceana Gold and Barrett Gold Corp., the world's largest gold mining company. New Legacy is well-funded and professionally managed, and we invite you to visit our website to learn more. NewLegacyGold.com. That's N-U-L-E-G-A-C-Y Gold.com. Again, N-U-L-E-G-A-C-Y Gold.com. 
Novo Resources focuses on the exploration and development of gold projects. Its flagship asset is the Beaton's Creek Gold Project in Western Australia, where it is currently processing a 30,000-ton bulk sample. Novo also controls 100% interest in the Blue Speck Gold Antimony Project, where it is conducting a 10,000-meter drill program. The company has over $7 million in cash and enjoys strong shareholder support from the likes of Eric Sprott and Newmont Mining. It trades in Canada and the U.S. under the symbols NVO and NSRPF respectively. 